Chapter 3, Think Fast or Die. Ocean liners, seagoing yachts, fishing boats, and craft of all kinds pass daily the west coasts of Baja, California, Mexico, and Central America on their way to and from the great ports of the Pacific. Yet, in the year 1933, the maps of these countries still had large areas marked unexplored, unknown country. We used to wonder why. Surely countries with great mineral wealth, potential resources, with traditions of magnificent ancient civilizations had as much to offer the explorer as the bleak lands of Antarctica and Mongolia. Perhaps the least known of all these vast stretches is Baja, California. As you approach it from the sea, it suggests a land arrested at some moment of its creation, some great unfinished building whose outlines and foundations imply its builder's purpose and intent before an unforeseen contingency forever prevented its completion. The huge backbone of the bleak Cordillera traverses its length rising abruptly from the Pacific Ocean for its greater distance, terminating in the great ranges that parallel the Gulf of California. Between the coastal mountains and the Sierra de la Giganta and Sierra San Pedro Martir ranges of the Gulf lie deserts, plateaus, and semi-arid valleys, eroded gullies and arroyos denuded of earth support scant stands of mesquite, cacti, and other desert growths. Here, the struggle for life can be won only by the man who has stripped himself of every need except the most elemental. The peninsula's 58,000 square miles of wind-swept plateaus, deserts, and infrequent oases support a population of 93,000 people, most of whom live in scattered villages along its sea coasts and near the American border. Its great interior ranges and mountain valleys are the unmolested home of the cougar and the condor. Torrential cloudbursts and cyclones occur at periodic intervals. Little wonder that much of it is still unexplored, even though it was discovered by Cortes in the 16th century and its settlement attempted when New England was still a British colony. It has a wealth of minerals and precious stones. Its waters abound in marine life. But Baja California, like Pandora's box, contains much beside blessings. The Jesuits sought to tame the country's inhabitants and the men in mail to exploit them. Both failed. But when the Europeans withdrew, the hardy natives had all but disappeared.
perhaps softened by European influence and diet. This land offers, in the true Darwinian sense, survival only to the fittest. It could well be an object lesson to our modern prophets of utopia, who are always screaming about some new dispensation that will take them from men that will take from men the need for unremitting effort. In a sense, the Indians of Baja California are a case in point. This, then, was the land which we had set ourselves to conquer. I mean conquer only in the sense that survival itself in such a land is a major conquest, not only of environment, but of one's self. The second day out from Ensenada, the blank checks which we had given fortune, duly filled out by the fickle jade, began to be presented for payment. No piker, fortune, she tried to take it all. We had stopped at the island of San Martin, an extinct volcano rising out of the sea, where we made camp on the beach between a Chinaman's grave and a small hut made of whiskey cases. Then we started out to see San Martin. The slopes of the volcano were honeycombed with fissures, the breeding grounds for great colonies of cormorants, pelicans, and other seabirds. We explored the large crater on the island's summit and were making our way down the seaward side of the cone when we sm spied a small crater in the center of which yawned a black hole. The rocks round its edges burnt black. The crater looked as though it needed exploring, one of those things that seem a good idea at the time. We speculated as to whether the vent, through which hot gases and steam had escaped during the volcano's period of activity, would go clear to the main crater. We just had to know, so we hurried back to camp to secure a 60-foot lariat and a couple of candles. Returning to the crater, I made one end of the lariat fast round a big boulder near its edge. Then I lowered myself through the tiny opening. Ginger handed me the lighted candle, and I slid down the lariat to the floor of the cave about ten feet below the surface. A large cavern extended in two directions from where I stood. Ginger attempted the descent feet first, but as she had not the strength in her arms either to let herself down on the rope or to pull herself back up, she dangled helplessly, half in and half out the tiny opening. To help her, I knotted a stirrup hold in the rope about four feet above the ground, thinking that if I stood in it, her feet could reach my shoulders. But just as I placed my foot in the stirrup, Ginger, with a shower of rocks, and the rope tumbled down on top of me. There was a crash, and we were in darkness. Feeling round, I recovered the candle, lit it, and looked up. The big boulder, round which I had tied the lariat, had rolled down over the opening. We were trapped inside the volcano. It sounds melodramatic beyond belief, but that was the simple fact. We dared not think about the implications of the situation, 
nor speculate about the possibilities of suffocation before we even had a chance to plan some method of escape. I wonder if we'll ever get out of this, was all I could trust myself to say. There's only one way to find out, and that's to start looking right now while the candles hold out, Ginger said quietly. There were two passages. One appeared to lead upward, the other led down a rather steep declivity. The upward passage seemed the best bet. We began slowly moving over its rocky, uneven floor until we came to a place where it apparently terminated in an abrupt drop. I lowered the candle by a string and found another ledge about ten feet down. Working my way down over the edge, I let myself down as far as possible and slid the rest of the way. Ginger followed, and we continued our search. Soon we arrived at an absolutely impassable place. The first candle was almost burnt out. We retraced our steps to the slide. The descent to the lower level had been difficult, but the ascent almost had us licked. By using meager handholds on one side, I managed to climb to where I could take hold of the upper ledge. Then while I held on, Ginger scrambled up over my body and helped me up. Back at the entrance, only one course remained, to follow the downward passage. One short hour of light, one small candle, one long chance. I kept wondering as we crept along the passage, who will ever know what had happened to us? Someone will find, sometime or other, that neat, orderly little camp with the boat drawn up beside it. But what of us? The only encouragement that we had was a faint draft of air upon our faces as we crept along. Finally, the candle was all but gone. I put the remaining scrap of wax on a rock. It seemed wise to use what little light remained so that we might see each other for what was probably the last time. I wouldn't mind so much going on a fighting basis, but sort of crawling out. Well, hmm? Ginger managed a wan smile. There goes the light, I said. Let's start crawling. Anything is better than this damned inactivity. I led the way, round and over the huge boulders that blocked the dark passage. On and on we crawled, our hands and knees bruised and bleeding from the rough, slashing surfaces. Our faces always turned towards that tiny bit of draft. Several times we came to sheer drop-offs. Tossing a rock in the darkness, we could hear it rattle far below in some dark cavern. This meant retracing that tortuous trail, inch by inch, until we found another passage. The blood pounded in our ears. We could hardly hear each other's voices. We became dizzy and lost all sense of direction. We had spoken no word for a long time. My mouth was dry and sticky. I stopped and stood up, helping Ginger up beside me, and tried to speak. But the words came with difficulty. Draft. Stronger. Somewhere was all I could manage. Ginger put her arm around my shoulders. Look! Light! Up there! I raised my head. Above us there were specks of light. Out! I cried. By a one in a million chance, we had emerged through one of those tiny fissures that we had seen on our way up the slope. Exhausted, we lay down on the rocky ground, watching the stars through the cloud rifts.
In the grey light of dawn, we stumbled our way round the island and into camp. Ginger immediately got out the coffee pot. Dan, she said, next time we explore a cave like that one, I'm going to wear knee pads. Lady, you're lucky to have any knees left to put them on, I reminded her. And by the way, I'll take my knee pads now in the form of flapjacks. After we'd eaten breakfast, Ginger lifted the canteen and shook it. Another pretty surprise. We're almost out of water. I promised that after a good sleep and another meal, we'd load the canoe and go to the mainland and see if we couldn't find some. The next morning, but little worse for our experiences, we hoisted sail and started down the coast looking for water. We knew that water was scarce, but we had yet to learn just how scarce. Springs and wells that we had been told to look for had dried up or were just not there. Places marked on the map turned out to be non-existent. We would find an old adobe ruin or the long-abandoned relics of some commercial enterprise instead of the village or hacienda marked on the map. We began to have a sinking feeling. We could do without a lot of things, but we had to have water. We came at last to a little bay that was supposed to have a spring. The promise of water was sufficient reason for shooting the heavy surf. We landed and began looking for the spring, but to our great disappointment, it was not there. On the north shore, there was the wreck of a boat, and back in a little ravine away from the beach, we found the remains of a pathetic attempt to build a shelter. Two shallow graves on a nearby knoll were further evidences of tragedy. Two graves, I said. Wonder what happened to the third fellow. No one left to bury him. Coyotes, maybe? Looking carefully through the hut, we found several cans of food rusted and spoiled. It was evident that the shipwrecked crew had had food but no water. Ginger sighed dolefully as I said, We will have to think of some way to get water, even on this beach. Let's go out to the wreck and see what we can find. The old derelict contained quite a bit of gear. Even the engine was still in place. I salvaged a piece of copper tubing about two feet long. On the beach, we found two five-gallon oil cans in fair condition. These cans litter the coast from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, I suppose. We found them everywhere. We carried our spoils back to camp and sat down and looked at them. Two five-gallon cans and a piece of tubing ought to spell water if we could find out how to fit those letters together. We had a fire and the Pacific Ocean for additional material. Of course, speculated Ginger, we could make a still if we had enough tubing for a coil to condense the steam, but we haven't. I began to remember stories of other outfits who had made fresh water by distilling seawater, but all of them seemed to have had a terrible time doing it. Some sailors had told a woeful tale of being adrift on a disabled ship in the Atlantic for two years. They had made a little still, which they dared not leave day or night. One man spent all his time pouring cold water on the rifle barrel, which they had used for a pipe, to cool it sufficiently to cause the steam to condense. We would have to think of a better solution than that. Damn, I said. We've spent two years training our bodies for this trip, but we've neglected the most important thing, how to think in terms of this coast. We've always taken water for granted. From now on, there will be a lot of other things we can't take for granted, too. Well, then why not? At home, water comes from a tap. 
I've never had to think about water before, Ginger answered. But we both had physics and chemistry in college, and we ought to know how to make water with that background, I argued. I know the formula, if that's any help, Ginger offered. All I ever did in lab was read the manual, follow instructions, and there it was. Besides, I wasn't sent to college to think. I was sent to learn what other people had found out. If I did that, I got a good grade. We sat round for half an hour drawing diagrams. Finally, as the result of our deliberations, I whittled two wooden plugs, drilled holes through them for tubing, dug two pits in the sand, built a fire in one, and put one can two-thirds full of seawater over it. In the other pit, I put the empty tin, and on top of it, the shipwrecked crew's rusted two-pound coffee can full of seawater. In places, the rust had eaten through its sides so that a thin stream of water constantly dripped on the oil can and kept it cool. Soon the water was boiling and steam whistled around round the plugs, whose fit was far from perfect. In about an hour, I had dismantled the still and picked up the can that had been empty. I was surprised at its weight. I poured some of the hot liquid into a cup and tasted it. It was perfectly sweet water. Whoops, said Ginger, a quart an hour. That will keep us going. We kept the still going all day, and by sundown we had both canteens full and enough water for Ginger to wash out a few clothes, though we had a sense of guilt in using water for washing where other men had died of thirst. Later we were forced to devise methods of obtaining water which made our first triumph seem like child's play. The next morning we got off to an early start down the coast. Our course paralleled a barren shore whose cliffs were broken by an occasional arroyo filled with boulders. After some hours of sailing we began to watch for a place to land. A narrow little cove backed by grayish-brown boulders offered the best possibilities, so we picked up a swell and shot the breaker line. Before the canoe grounded, I jumped out and right there got one of the surprises of my life. The brown boulders came to life and began moving towards the canoe. We had landed in a seal rookery. Dodging a herd of sea lions was a new experience, but we managed it without casualties on either side. The beach was uninhabitable, however, for a seal rookery does not smell like violets. Disappointed, we abandoned the cove and started out to sea once more. Had we known that we would find no other landing that night and would have to fight a thunderstorm at sea into the bargain, we probably would not have been so fastidious and would have shared potluck with the seals, irrespective of their personal habits. As it was, we spent the night fighting the worst storm in our experience. Along towards morning, Ginger said, If we keep afloat in this storm, I'll never be afraid of another. I thought the storms we fought while in training were bad enough. All your life, I said, you've tagged me round looking for adventure. Now you've got it. How do you like it? Just fine, she retorted. Only I'd prefer this kind of adventure in daylight. It isn't what I thought it would be, with just an occasional flash of lightning to show you what you're doing. I've bailed out the Pacific Ocean at least twice, and my arms are so tired I think they're going to drop off. Daylight revealed our situation. We were about ten miles offshore and had been blown past San Quintin Bay, where we had intended to land. 
We ate an unpalatable breakfast of tortillas soaked in salt water. The wind blew from first one direction and then another, and by noon we were still three miles off the beach. Suddenly we heard a great commotion on the seaward side of us. It sounded like the roar of heavy surf. On the horizon the water was churned to white foam. The sound grew louder as the white foam moved steadily in our direction. We lowered the sail and cleared the decks for action. After the storm, we were not particularly anxious for additional excitement. Now the foam was streaked with black. Soon we could see the, soon we could see great shapes leaping high into the air, and falling back into the water, with such force that it was churned to spray. Dan, it's a school of porpoises, and there must be thousands of them. Look, that white line must be at least two miles long. We pointed the canoe round to meet the assault, hoping that they wouldn't run over us. For twenty minutes, we watched the school go by. They dived and splashed round the boat, filling the cockpit with spray. They were five to eight feet long and so numerous that the water was black with them. Finally, the last stragglers leapt and splashed by, and we heaved sighs of relief. With our minds on hot coffee and dry blankets, we headed for the beach. We could see Baja Point and knew that on the other side of it would be Rosario Bay. There were other reasons besides the coffee for hurrying. The horizon was darkening in the west, and the rising wind gave warning that another storm was on the way. We reefed sail and zoomed before the wind, just outside the breaker line and into Rosario Bay. The surf was high and the shore was rocky, always matters for apprehension to us, since one injudicious landing could do a lot of damage to the vagabunda's canvas bottom. I took the sail down, lashed it on deck, fastened two long lines on to the sides, and let them trail astern. What are those lines for? Ginger wanted to know. Safety lines. If the canoe goes ashore too fast, we'll jump overboard, grab the lines, and hold it back. We paddled in near to the breakers, waited for a low wave, and with it shot in close to shore. Just before we reached the beach, we both jumped out and grabbed the canoe. Ginger held the canoe in water about waist-deep, while I unzipped the cockpit and carried the camp gear to the beach. As soon as the canoe was empty, I took the paddles and the centerboard and laid them on the beach just above the waterline. Then, with Ginger at one end and me at the other, we gently carried the canoe and laid it on the centerboard and paddles. This is the way we landed on almost every beach. In this manner, we prevented the canoe from coming in contact with the rocks, which would bruise the canvas and soon start a leak. During our three years of travel, the bottom of the canoe never touched the beach, except when we were unable to prevent it. We had a camp routine, which we maintained throughout the trip. After landing, I built a fire while Ginger got out her mess kit and started preparations for the meal. Then I set up the tent. If we were in the vicinity of game, we both took a hike while the coffee water boiled and the fire made a bed of coals to cook on. If we were not in hunting country, I fished while she started cooking. We had agreed upon a division of duties, and by teamwork in handling the canoe and in making and breaking camp, we managed with a minimum of confusion. On this particular evening, while Ginger made the long-awaited coffee, I caught a, a mess of jack smelt. As I started to dig a hole in the sand to rinse them in, I made a discovery. Clams. They were so closely packed that a few square feet 
of beach yielded twenty. There was, in this wilderness, a sense of peace and freedom. We had ceased fretting over the future and what tomorrow would bring. We lived in a timeless world where each day was complete in itself, and one accepted whatever it brought without cavilling. The next morning we made an early start, and after two spills managed to get out through the heavy surf. In the late afternoon we came to San Geronimo Island, where after a fruitless search for a place to land, we finally tied the canoe in a kelp bed and spent the night. San Geronimo is a great rock with a covering of ash, sand, and guano, surrounded by kelp beds and rocks. There I had the bad luck, while trying to land a big fish, to step on the gaff, a large hook on the end of a pole, and run the point about half an inch into my heel. After leaving San Geronimo Island, we sailed on down to San Carlos Point, past barren, rocky beaches with high bluffs coming down to the water's edge. We landed near the point and found the wreck of a 22-ton schooner, its name, inele- its name illegible. It had been wrecked, we thought, not more than six months prior to our landing. Its diesel engines were still in good shape. The beach was strewn with wreckage, parts of old sailing vessels, timbers, cabin fittings, and weather-beaten life preservers. A careful search of the beach disclosed the camp of the shipwrecked crew, the remains of a fire and an old can with coffee grounds in it, but no evidence as to what had befallen the survivors. We sat round the campfire that night discussing this country. Baja, California was evidently a place where you thought fast or died. There was so much to see and explore on this beach and in the back country that we stayed here several days, although there was no fresh water Seafood was abundant, and we lived well. I made a lobster pot out of driftwood and caught three. At low tide there were also mussels and clams. My injured foot had begun to pain me, and from its appearance I knew that infection had set in. It had long been my conviction that an injured part of the body heals more quickly if it is used than if it is pampered. This may be contrary to medical opinion on the treatment of infections, but at least it worked in my case. In addition to keeping the wound clean, I walked on it at every opportunity. This caused a constant drainage from the infected area and I believe hastened its healing. In support of this theory, we decided to take a walk into the back country and the next morning scaled the high bluffs that rise almost from the water's edge. On the mesa above there were evidences of newly dug earth marked with cairns. We speculated as to what might be buried there but as a cursory examination yielded nothing, we abandoned the inquiry. As we walked inland, we saw rich outcroppings of copper, ore, quartz, and gypsum. After a considerable climb, we came to another high mesa. Here was a big pile of coke, at least ten tons of it. From the coke pile, a trail led further inland, and we assumed that at some time mining operations had been carried on nearby. On our inland trips, we frequently came across the relics of abandoned commercial enterprises. Whether their abandonment was always due to the unyielding nature of the land or to the various political upheavals that have kept Mexico in turmoil for many years, it is hard to say. Doubtless, when men need to utilize the vast mineral and other resources of Baja, California, a way will be found to do so. 
In the meantime, only those men prepared to risk defeat and inured to hardships should attempt its exploitation. There are too many reminders of their predecessors' failures. After we left San Carlos, we sailed down the coast close to high bluffs of red volcanic rock and yellow sandstone. A strong northwest wind soon had us skimming along under double-reefed sail. Late in the afternoon, we rounded Canoas Point and wet, cold, and hungry, decided to share the beach with a large herd of sea lions. The seals were anything but pleased at our intrusion. One old bull who made his home in a battered metal lifeboat, which was half submerged in the sand, was particularly indignant. He remained in the boat barking insults both day and night. The wind was blowing a gale by now, and seals or no seals, we dared not put to sea again. The wreck of the fishing boat Wellfarer lay just offshore. On its seaward side, in six-foot letters, was the word HELP, and an arrow pointing in the direction of a narrow canyon. In the canyon we found two shacks, but no crew. On the beach were two battered lifeboats, now the homes of seals, lobster pots, potato crates, a woman's high-heeled slipper, ragged blue jeans, and a sailor's hat. There was something indescribably lonely and tragic about these beaches, with their mute evidences of disaster. We found them often, and they always left us with a feeling of desolation. Along this section of the coast there was little to differentiate one's one day's routine from the next. The surf was always dangerously high, the landings uniformly difficult. The country behind the rocky beaches was, with few exceptions, cactus-covered desert. The scant vegetation was heavily armored with dagger-like thorns to repel invaders. Its cell structure was cunningly contrived to retain and store every bit of moisture that could be extracted from the air or from the ground. A few birds made their homes in these cacti, and we also saw occasional reptiles and rodents. We were not able to do nearly so much exploring in the back country as we wished. The problems of food, water, and finding a place to land, and getting there after we found it, necessarily took up most of our time. Our dependence on the beaches for food cut down the radius of our operations away from it considerably, for like the life round us, we were stripped to the fundamentals, not only in our way of living, but in our thinking as well. Survival meant cutting the cloth of our desires to fit the circumstances of our environment. Someone has said that civilization is a magnificent aggregation of the non-essentials. Baja California gave a new meaning and interpretation to the essentials. Here they often meant the least we could survive on, and it took unremitting effort to obtain them. One of our most difficult adjustments was the regulation of our body's reaction to our diet. Used to having quantities of milk, butter, eggs, and other easily digested foods, our digestive juices seemed unable to cope with the problem of extracting nourishment from the coarsely ground corn and the low-protein fish diet. At first we were always hungry, and we gained little satisfaction from our meals. Later on this discomfort passed away, and our stomachs became hardy enough to have coped with shoe leather. In spite of the lack of variety in our diet, we were in perfect health, and our outdoor life seemed to agree with us. 
We could see the increase in the size of our muscles, and our endurance had doubled. There was also a decided difference in our mental reactions to situations that would formerly have bothered and worried us. After leaving Canoas Point, our next port of call was Blanca Point. Here the surf was dangerously high, at least 20 feet. While we were waiting for the calm spell, that is, the low breaker in the series, a big sea caught us and we came in end over end. A sorrier-looking pair of adventurers you never saw, bruised, our clothing torn, and covered with sand. The coyotes here were very troublesome. Some of them were even bold enough to come right into camp. A bit beyond the point lay the little bay of Playa Maria. The beach looked inviting, and we stayed there several days. There were fine white sand dunes that offered a roller coaster ride full of thrills. We slid on our stomachs, and there was also good swimming, fishing, and hunting. Certainly the old saying, when the tide is out, the table is set, applied to this beach. We ate abalones, mussels, clams, lobsters, crabs, and large jack smelt. A square yard of beach would yield a gunny sack full of the most succulent clams you ever tasted. We found fifteen pearls of various sizes and shapes in the mussels. On one of our hikes in the back country, we found a deep canyon in which there were many quail, deer, and foxes. I had the good fortune to shoot a young deer, and we had the welcome change of venison for supper. The balance of the meat we prepared to take with us by cutting it into strips and hanging it on cross pieces over the fire to dry. We always tried to build up a food reserve whenever possible from these infrequent windfalls. We killed nothing for sport, and never more than we could use. We often thanked our lucky stars that the game hog, so prevalent among a certain class of Americans, had not preceded us. From now on, traveling along the coast would be more difficult, if anything, and it was evident that the canoe was still too heavily loaded to ride out the storms that blow off these shores. Now that we were past the tenderfoot stage, we felt that we could safely dispense with some of our extra equipment, such as a fire grate, extra tools, and so forth, so we left them on the beach when we sailed away. The cliffs along this coast gave evidences of heavily of heavy mineralization. Their faces were streaked with iron and copper oxides, and quartz outcroppings of exceeding promise were plentiful. Ahead of us now lay Scammon's Lagoon, one of the most famous spots along the coast. We reefed sail when we reached what we thought was the entrance to this extensive lagoon, and skimmed along just outside the breakers. The further we went, the further out to sea the breakers extended. We were three miles offshore, and a creaming line of breakers whitened the entire distance between us and the coast. We realized that somehow we had passed the entrance. Turning round, we tacked back, scanning the surf for a possible channel. There was not a break in the line of foaming water. I stood up in the canoe, and it seemed to me that I could see a small area of calm water just inside the breaker line. I think there is a channel, I said to Ginger, but we are going to have to shoot very heavy surf to enter it. How about giving up the idea of going to Scammon's? No, she said positively, not unless it can't be done. We've finished everything so far that we've started on this trip. It would set a bad precedent. We unshipped the mast and lashed down everything, including the paddles, which we fastened with lanyards long enough to give us the use of them. We ran a line round the gunnels, through the ring bolts, 
for handholds in case we should spill. We trailed astern two lines about fifty yards long, so that if we turned over we could swim across the wake of the canoe, grab the lines, and not lose it. When everything was ready, we headed in towards the breaker line and waited for the calm spell. There was none. Big seas were coming in our direction, and we hastily tried to paddle out of the way too late. One caught us astern, and lifting us high in the air, almost tossed us out as it carried us swiftly towards the shore. Ginger, in the cockpit, was paddling first to one side and then the other in an attempt to keep the canoe from skidding sideways, but in spite of our desperate efforts, the canoe rolled over on its side. I grabbed for the safety line on the gunwale, caught it with one hand, and held it as the canoe rolled like a log towards the beach. With every roll, I was either dragged frantically down into the water or tossed into the air. Every time I came up, I looked frantically for Ginger. It was impossible to see anything behind me, for the foam of the following sea was too high. My heart sank as I realized that somewhere in those breakers she had been washed off, at least two miles from shore. The only thing I could do was to try to stop this rolling and get the canoe back through the breakers to Ginger. I knew that if I worked my way back to the stern of the canoe and took hold of the trailing lines, my body would act as a drag. Each time the canoe rolled over, dragging me with it, I thought my arms were being torn from their sockets. To work my way along the rolling canoe was the hardest thing I hope I am ever called upon to do. But finally I got back to the line and swung the stern end of the boat round to the breakers. As I began to crawl back along the line to the canoe, Ginger emerged from somewhere and climbed on deck. My relief was so great that I almost dropped the line. I got on board and heard Ginger say, "'Thank God. I thought you were washed overboard.' I've been almost frantic trying to think of some way to get back to you. Each of us had been clinging to safety lines on opposite sides of the canoe. The canoe had lost momentum, and though the breakers were still high, they did no further damage. We had a difficult time, however, paddling through them to the quiet waters of the channel. Soon the shoreline closed in on either side, and as we struck a current, we knew that we were in the lagoon itself. We edged away from the breakers, and laying aside the paddle, I said, "'Well, here we are.' Ginger looked at me, her face contorting like a baby's as she started to cry. "'What on earth is the matter now?' I asked. "'Oh, nothing. I'm just frightened,' she sobbed. "'Afraid of what?' I asked. "'We're safe now. It would be more natural to be afraid of something when it was happening, not when it is over. I'm frightened just the same, and I'm going to keep on crying whether you like it or not. When the thing I'm frightened of is happening, I haven't time to cry. You can't blame me if I take time out now,' she answered." We spent over a week in Scammons. The waters of the Great Lagoon are uncharted, and there are many sandbars and islets along its length. It is visited from time to time by fishermen and turtle hunters, but we saw no signs of its present occupation by men. The channels of blue-green water twisted and turned, great glistening dunes, reefs of clam shells, here and there the white dinning bones of whales, a few scattered choyas, and other grotesque cacti forms gave the landscape the strange and eerie aspect of some lost and primeval world. Its profound silences were accentuated by the shrill cries of seabirds and the ceaseless movement of water. One morning we were ready once more to pit ourselves against the tremendous surf line at the bar. Again we had prepared the canoe for an emergency. 
The tide was going out fast, and with the strong current, we should be able to clear the entrance in a hurry. We dug in our paddles and headed into the crashing breaker line. As the bow of the canoe rose with the first comber, I shouted to Ginger, Afraid? Without turning her head, she shouted back, No. The vagabunda did a noble job as we forced her through each oncoming breaker with steady strokes. Many of the big seas washed completely over the canoe, filling the cockpit with water. When this happened, Ginger bailed out while I paddled. Then we would paddle on together. It seemed that we would never get through that surf, even with the tide in our favor. Our muscles began to ache as though jabbed with white-hot irons. Sharp pains ran up our backbones, ending with miniature explosions in our skulls. The sight of open water at last encouraged us to put our final reserves of force behind the paddles, and soon we were out in the open sea. We rested before hoisting sail. I hadn't realized the lateness of the hour until I got out my tiny compass to take our bearings. It was a little afternoon, and we were still a long way from our destination, Cedros Island, which we had hoped to make by sundown. Whipped along by a considerable breeze, the vagabunda dipped her lee rail under, making good time tacking a zigzag course towards the island. By three o'clock, however, the wind had increased so that while we were still making five knots, we were making so much leeway that we were only advancing half a mile an hour in the direction of our destination. We just tacked back and forth helplessly. At sundown, I was astonished to see that we had not gotten more than three miles outside the breaker line. The tide had turned, and we were getting nowhere. With the coming of nightfall, the wind increased to almost gale force. We reefed the sail, and making poor time against the strong wind, bucked and bumped round in the darkness. Later, Ginger's sharp eyes spied something ahead of us. Look, it's white, she cried. At first I could distinguish nothing. Then I saw a great mass of white about two hundred yards ahead of us. Breakers, I groaned, breakers in front and breakers behind. We can't go ahead, we can't go back. The tide's going out, too, and we're in shoal water. There's nothing to do but fight it out. Breaker after breaker, each one larger than its predecessor, crashed down upon us as we dug in with our paddles and tried to ride them through. We paddled for our very lives. Blisters rose on our hands and broke, and soon the flesh was raw and bleeding. The paddles became sticky with the mixture of salt and blood. The cockpit was full of water, but we could spend no time in bailing now. It took all our efforts to keep the loggy canoe headed into the breakers. Wet and cold, our bodies aching so that it seemed they would break under the strain, we fought on hour after hour. We had thought that we were completely exhausted with our initial effort in getting out through the bar of the lagoon, but now we learned what severe stress the body can stand when life depends upon it. Past the barriers that fatigue normally imposes on the will and body, there is another level of energy and another stopping point as well. Then beyond that barrier lies a zone of action in which the will alone functions, and the beaten body responds with no counter-suggestions of its own. When Ginger began to falter in her stroke, I shouted, One more stroke! We chanted in unison, One more stroke! Hour after hour, all through the night. Perhaps we continued to paddle along after the heavy seas had ceased, for the realization came very slowly to me that now there were only the high swells of the open ocean about us. We're out, I croaked. Let's rest. 
I tried to lay my paddle down, but my hand stuck to it. I was unable to relax my fingers from their grip. After a bit, while Ginger bailed out the cockpit, I managed to work them loose. Soon we had the sail up and were making good time to our old destination, Cedros. We reached the island in the afternoon, but were unable to find a place to land, so went on to a further group of islands, the San Benitos. The first camp we set up was anything but the neat, efficient job we prided ourselves on doing. After a bite to eat, we turned in for twelve hours of drugged sleep on our stomachs, since our backs were raw from wear and tear. Our hands and bodies were in such a condition that it was impossible to continue until they had had a chance to heal, so we built a camp suitable for a stay of several weeks if necessary. The torture of setting up that camp on San Benitos is something that we are both going to remember. There wasn't much we could do round camp but think and plan. Our hands were scabbed over, and the least use of our fingers would cause these crusts to break and bleed. Gathering firewood was a great trial, and Ginger must have suffered equally in cooking our meals. Huge herds of sea lion and seabirds were the island's only inhabitants. After a week's rest, thanks to the perfect condition of our bodies, we were able to put to sea once more. Our sojourn did more than rest our bodies. It gave us a chance to summarize the advantages and disadvantages of our adventure. We realized more than ever the necessity for teamwork, quick thinking, and disregard of self if we were to continue. If our personal safety came first at all times, then it was better to go home and do our adventuring vicariously. On the other hand, if we could gain some satisfaction from knowing that the aching muscles of today would become the efficient, tireless muscles of tomorrow, and that the mental disciplines imposed by hunger and thirst would eventually free us from concern with our bodies and appetites, we could take the chance that we knew the future held. Our main objective from here on was Magdalena Bay and By Christmas. That became our slogan, Magdalena by Christmas. We stopped for a day's exploration on San Pablo Point, south of Cedros Island. There was a legend that in the ruins of an old mission there, the Padres had hidden a quantity of gold after the order for their expulsion from New Spain. I think they were given 36 hours in which to leave their missions so that they would have no time in which to incite the Indians. I had kept a careful record, begun when I wore knee pants, of all the bonanzas rumored to be lying along this coast. Truth to tell, as I became older, the possibility of finding uh, these hordes seems remote. Nevertheless, Ginger and I always looked for them if they were not too far off our route. It was something like hunting Easter eggs. After considerable searching, we found the ruin of the mission, a crumbling heap of adobe. I got out the map and found where a cross marks the spot. The rock was there, but the tree was long since gone. Ginger did the specified number of paces, which brought us to the point where the old mission tower had fallen. Beneath this rubbish was supposed to be the treasure. The sun was hot, and we both looked with great disinterest at the cement-like adobe that stood between us and riches. Now that we know where it is, we can come back some other time and get it, said Ginger. I knew that we never would, but I said, yes, of course, we can come back later with shovels. That was part of the game. Then I marked on the map, located. We were both in high spirits as a light breeze filled our sails and bore us south towards Magdalena. 
and a heap of trouble.